Today we look at Jesus' letter to the church of Thyatira. And uh, this church, or this message to this church, is the centerpiece. It's the central message in Jesus' seven messages. So that it's significant because it's the center message. It's also the longest of Jesus' messages to these churches, even though it's addressed to the church in the smallest city of the seven. Jesus' message to Thyatira is very similar to his message we looked at last week to the church in Pergamum. In fact, they were kind of close to each other. So sort of think Thompson and Boneville, okay? And Boneville would be a Thyatira. And uh, he accused, so imagine, sending the longest letter to that church. But he, last week, he, he accused the church of Pergamum of being a compromising church. And this week, he's accusing the church of Thyatira of being a corrupted church. Really, those are two sides of the same coin. Both are rooted in the false idea that you can sacrifice your principles, that you can go back on your values in order to get ahead in life. And we know that's not true. But when we take both of these letters together, we discover that whenever we compromise our beliefs, we really just end up corrupting our hearts. So look with me, if you will, at Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations." He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your message to us today. Speak to our hearts. Illuminate this text before us and call us into deeper obedience with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the first part of this letter, and and as we've said before, these letters are all divided up roughly into five parts, and each letter follows a similar pattern. And the first part of that pattern is a characteristic Christ reveals of Himself. And in this letter, to this church, Christ is emphasizing the fact that He purifies His church. Christ purifies His church. Now, if you take this description of Jesus right here 
in verse 18. And you compare it to the description of Jesus in verse 12 to the church in Pergamum. You put those two together and turn back to Revelation 1. That initial vision that John receives of Jesus, you see that's exactly where these two images come from. Now, last week we focused on Jesus coming with that sword from his mouth, that sword of, of judgment, uh, that sword of pruning, that sword of the word of God that divides our hearts and our spirits. It gets to the motives inside each and every one of us. Well, this week Jesus is focusing on his flaming eyes and his bronze feet. Basically, when we take these together, we see that Jesus comes to discipline his church by the power of his word, or if necessary, to judge them by the swift and decisive power of his holy authority. The fact that Jesus has these flaming eyes reminds us that Jesus can see right through all of our masks, all of our excuses. He doesn't buy our platitudes or our polite exteriors. You know, we can dress up and look really like we've got it together on a Sunday morning when inside we're coming apart. Jesus can see right through to our hearts. His eyes pierce. But His eyes also purify. And what Christ doesn't purify, He will punish as symbolized by those bronze feet. Like He says there at the end, He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. If necessary, Christ can come into a church that He cannot purify because they are stubborn and unrepentant and He can remove their lampstand. He can bring His swift judgment. Now, it's interesting that this verse is the only place in the entire book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. The only place in this whole book where Jesus is called the Son of God is right here. Now, why would Jesus reserve an otherwise common title of His in the New Testament? Why would He reserve it in this book for this one church? Well, a couple of reasons. One, Thyatira's patron god was Apollo, the son of Jupiter. Apollo was called the son of God. And Thyatira was ruled by named, uh, a man named Tyremnus, who was referred to by his subjects as a son of the gods. So what Jesus is saying to this church, he's reminding them that he alone is the one true son of the one living God. Authority rests in him over and above any ruler or any god of the Romans. He's reminding them of this. Christ, the Son of God, comes to purify or, if necessary, to judge His church. But then Christ moves to the compliment. Most of these churches, not all of them, but most of them, He gives a compliment. And the compliment He gives to the church in Thyatira is that they were growing. They were growing in their faith, in their hope, and in their love. Now, if you remember... A couple of weeks ago, to the church in Ephesus, Jesus said, I know your deeds. Just like he says to the church in Thyatira, he says, I know your deeds. But when Jesus said that to the Ephesian church, it was with a rebuke. Because while they did a lot of good things, to them it was just religious activity. It was just being busy for the sake of being busy. They looked good on the outside, but inside they had forsaken their first love. They had lost their love for Jesus. But to this church, it's not just outward good deeds. For this church, it really does come from their heart. He praises them for their love, their faith, their service, and their perseverance. Now, this brings a couple of things to mind. The first, when we think of faith, perseverance, or another word for that is hope, we think of faith, hope, and love. 
And that just sort of sums up the Christian faith, doesn't it? In fact, oftentimes in Paul's letters, he would praise the churches he's writing to for their faith, hope, and love. In fact, to the church in Corinth, Jesus says that really the gospel is comprised of these, these virtues, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So Jesus is saying, you guys, you guys are on the right track. You're hitting all the marks of a New Testament church. You've got your faith, you've got your hope, you've got your love, and, and your service. Now, that made me think about our church's purpose statement. Love God, love people, serve the world together. This church, they had biblical values. They, they, were, they were on point, living on purpose for Christ. Faith, hope, love, service. But, when we look back at Jesus' rebuke of the Ephesians, when we compare it to this church, we see a stark con- a contrast. In Ephesus... Their first works were greater than their latest works. Remember, Jesus told them that the solution to their problem was to return, to repent, and do the things you did at first. Remember that? Jesus said, repent and do the things you did at first. They had lost sight of the priorities. They had, they had gotten really busy, but they neglected the deeper things of the faith. And Jesus said, return to what you did first. But look here in verse 19. To this church... Their latest works are greater than their first. They're the opposite of Ephesus. This is a church that is growing, increasing in faith, hope, love, and service. They're on the right path. But, no amount of loving and sacrificial service can compensate for a tolerance of evil. And that's the problem with this church. Jesus brought a rebuke to this church. Look at the criticism. The criticism is that they tolerated corruption. They tolerated corruption. Now, in this letter, Jesus is really addressing three different groups. This is kind of a complicated... That's one of the reasons it's the longest. He's he's really talking to three different groups. Let's start with the last group he references in verse 24. He's addressing the faithful believers. Look at verse 24, you'll see that. Now, I don't know for sure, but just it seems to me like this is probably a minority group in the church. This is the, this is the smallest group in the church. And perhaps they're even kind of getting some pressure. They're being oppressed a little bit by the rest of the church because they're not towing the party line. They're not going along to get along. They've rejected this woman nicknamed Jezebel and her false teachings. And as a result, Jesus just encourages them. And we'll get to that in a minute. He encourages them just to keep on. Just hold on to what you're doing. Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep remaining faithful. But the second group he addresses is really one person and her followers. It's the false teacher. He addresses this false teacher. And Jesus only had words of condemnation for her. A last chance warning to her followers. See, Jesus gave this woman an opportunity to repent. She refused. She continues to be unrepentant. She's unwilling to change. This woman is literally hell-bent on leading the church astray. And Jesus says, I'm not going to stand for it anymore. Jesus said, I'm coming to judge this false teacher, this prophetess he calls Jezebel. And for those who are committing spiritual adultery against the Lord with her... Jesus gives a final warning. He gives them one more chance. One more chance than He's given her. He gives her this final warning. Repent now. Reject Jezebel and her teachings. Or suffer her fate. 
He says, this is your final warning. These children, these followers of Jezebel, if they don't repent, Jesus says, I'm going to make an example out of you. I'm going to show the other churches what happens when you continually reject me and you embrace false teaching and you try to lead the church astray. He says, I'll strike you dead. Now, that's not very typical of Jesus, is it? We don't, we don't think of Jesus as the kind of guy walking around saying he's going to strike people dead. So this grabs our attention, doesn't it? This almost seems out of character. Jesus isn't messing around here. Now, you may remember in the book of Acts, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, early days of the church in Jerusalem. The church is still just a, a, a fledgling movement, okay, trying to get their, their feet under them. And this man and this woman, Ananias and Sapphira, they're wealthy, and they sell some land, and they, they pledge to give 100% of it to the church to help feed the hungry and clothe the naked and, and just to assist those in need. So it's, you know, it's, it's a great, very charitable act, but they lie. They actually keep some of it back for themselves. So on the one hand, they're lying to the church and to the Lord. On the other hand, they're stealing from them because they pledged 100% of that money to the church. And you know what happens when they're confronted right there? They're right there in the middle of worship. They're confronted. They both fall down dead. Daniel and the ushers have to drag them out. First, you know, first uh, Ananias comes in and he's dead. Sapphira walks in and Peter confronts her and, and she says the same lies. as well, you know, the same men that carried your husband out are on their way to get you to. And there she was gone. And we kind of chuckle about that, but that's serious business. And that doesn't happen but that one time in the book of Acts. But what the Holy Spirit is doing, what God is doing is making an example. He's establishing up front, this is the way the church is supposed to be. You're not like the lost world anymore. You've been saved. You've been changed. Live like it. But this woman was leading the church astray in the same way that Jezebel led Israel astray. We have to go back to First and Second Kings to read that story. King Ahab. And his wicked queen Jezebel were idol worshippers. And they were leading the people of Israel astray into sexual immorality and wickedness to worship the gods of Baal and Asherah. You know, the prophet Elijah, he was the thorn in their side. And eventually they both suffered terrible fates because of God's judgment upon them. But in the same way this false teacher is using sex and food, she's appealing to the base desires of people to lead them away from living in the ways of Christ. Jesus may have commended this church for growing in faith, love, hope, and service, but they had compromised with the world, and thus they corrupted the gospel. And that brings us to the last group that Jesus addresses. And that's those friendly towards sin. The tolerant ones, the open-minded people, the progressive believers. Now, this portion, I think, was probably the majority of the church. The majority of the church, they didn't go along with Jezebel's teachings. They weren't engaging in those practices, but they tolerated it. They gave it a wink and a nod. They pretended like it wasn't there. The church was so focused on being loving and hopeful and service-oriented, they forgot about being holy as God is holy. They forgot about holding fiercely to the truth as well as to grace. They, they focused on loving, but they weren't speaking the truth in love. They're an example of a church that becomes so progressive in love and mercy, they leave behind the truth of God's Word. 
and they lose their distinctive witness for Christ. Sure, they're doing good deeds in the community, but they don't look any different really than any other community charitable service provider. They're just the united way that meets together on a Sunday morning. There's nothing distinctive gospel-centered about them. They adopt an I'm okay, you're okay mentality, which is anti-gospel because you know what the gospel says? You're not okay. And I'm not okay. None of us are okay apart from the saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're all miserable sinners and wretches that deserve hell. All of us. doesn't matter what your particular sin might be. We're all sinners. And thus we all desperately need the grace of God and the transforming work of the Spirit in our lives. Y'all, Satan continues to lead Christians and churches down this same path today, doesn't he? Indulging in or tolerating immorality, using liberty as a license to sin. These things are not new. They've been around for 2,000 years. Now, when we compare this church with the church in Ephesus, we see two ways that the gospel can be corrupted. Two ways that churches, and churches tend to lean to one or the other, if they're going to lean one, you know, toward a corrupt gospel. And so as I talk about this, I want you to examine your own heart. Because we all tend to lean towards one of these false gospels, and it takes work to stay centered on the real gospel, which I'll touch on at the end here. Okay, the first corrupt gospel is the gospel of legalism. It's the gospel of legalism. Now, the church in Ephesus was the legalistic of the two churches here. They had a strong desire to please God. They were characterized by strong values and a moral lifestyle. They took God seriously. They took His Word seriously. They tried to do all the right things, but they had lost their love for Jesus. They had lost the joy of their salvation, the wonder and awe at God's grace in the process. A legalistic gospel says God is holy. And He's made His demands for the human race clear. And so we've got to warn and exhort and rebuke and admonish ourselves and other people to keep His commands because if we don't keep all God's commands, He's not going to be happy with us. Legalistic people implicitly believe that God's love and acceptance is somehow tied to their right conduct and their right beliefs. If they don't believe just the right so-and-so, if they don't act just the right way, then God's not going to love them. The gospel of legalism focuses mainly on the mind and on the will. And because of that, people that think they're really good at this gospel tend to be judgmental. They tend to have a holier-than-thou attitude. I know the right answers and you don't. God likes me better than He likes you. There's a t-shirt I saw said, Jesus loves me, this I know, but He likes me a whole lot better than He likes you. That's the gospel of legalism. We have to avoid that legalistic gospel that focuses too much on merely believing in and doing right things. The other end of that extreme is libertinism. Libertinism. I thought about just calling it leniency. That's a better word. But lenient is not strong enough a word. These people are libertine in their approach. The church in Thyatira was like that. They accepted Christ as their Savior, yes. They went to church every Sunday, yes. They studied their Bibles. They were generous. They met people's needs. They were even growing in faith, hope, love, and service. But their relationship with the Lord was still, like the church in Ephesus, less than it should be. Because they began to embrace the ideas and values and priorities of the lost world. If you look at the lifestyle of a libertine Christian... It doesn't look all that different than a non-Christian. 
They're kind of doing the same things, behaving the same ways. See, the Libertine Gospel says God is love and wants us to believe in Him, be nice to others, and just do our best to be good people. Beyond that, God doesn't really care how you live so long as you believe that God is love and Jesus forgives. These people see the Christian faith as a private, intellectual belief system. But just as legalism aims for the mind and the will, what libertinism is really aiming for is the heart and the strength, you know, the, the, the physical side of things. Libertine churches tend to focus on ritual a little bit more. They tend to focus on good deeds and acts of service and feeding the hungry. They focus on the physical side of things and on the emotional side of things, on love and kindness and those sorts of things. Libertinism, legalism. They both miss the mark. They're both equally wrong. Because the real gospel avoids both of those in favor of liberty and lordship. That's what the real gospel is about. It's about liberty and lordship. Now, Paul's letters give us the best understanding of the true nature of the gospel of liberty and lordship. He helps us to see the gospel as a spiritual reality. It's something that has already happened. It's something that is currently happening, and it's something that will someday happen in all of our lives through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The real gospel neither ignores nor rationalizes God's commands, but neither are they presented as requirements to earning God's favor. This gospel is never reduced into mere intellectual assent. It's not just checking off boxes. Yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. Nor is it reduced to a list of legalistic good works. I've got to do that, I've got to do that, I've got to do that, I've got to do that. It rejects both of those. Rather, Paul helps us see the gospel as rooted in the unconditional acceptance, security, and wealth that those who put their trust in Jesus Christ can enjoy. We do good works. We live righteous lives, not to be saved, but because we're saved already. Being generous... Being forgiving, being kind, being merciful and, and, and grace-filled and, and, and meeting people's needs, those are things that are the natural outgrowth of somebody who already belongs to Jesus Christ. In nearly every letter he writes, Paul explains these three basic truths of the gospel of liberty and lordship. One is that our identity is in Christ. Paul hits that again and again and again. Our identity is in Christ. Secondly, in Christ, we are new creations. Our behavior should flow. That's the third part. Our behavior should flow out of this new reality, our new identity in Christ, and thus we reject our old identity that's tied to the world. That's the gospel. In Christ, you are a new creation. So live like it. Live like it. Because of who you are. The real gospel, you see, aims for the whole person. Not just the mind and the will. Not just the heart and the strength. Jesus said we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The real gospel looks at the whole person. It's rooted in the lordship of Christ and the liberty of the Spirit. We're free from the fruitless attempts to have to keep moral standards. But at the same time, we're also set free from having to indulge our sinful natures. Christ 
sets us free from both trying to be good and from practicing evil. We have liberty to live in the knowledge that we are indwelt by the greatest liberator in the universe and the Lord of all. Or as Paul put it in Galatians, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. We're not saved by legalism and we're not saved for licentiousness. We are saved to live in the holiness and purity of God by the power of Jesus Christ. So we need to ask ourselves, which gospel do I really believe? The gospel of legalism that says it all depends on me and how I live? Or the gospel of libertinism that says it doesn't matter at all how I live? Being a Christian is just about being nice to other people and extending grace without demanding any life change. Which gospel do you believe? Or do you believe and follow the gospel of liberty and lordship that says that I die to self and sin so that I can live in righteousness to Christ? Our New Testament reading this morning sums it up in Colossians chapter 3. I want to read that again for us. It's a powerful, powerful book in the New Testament. I mean, they all are, but this one, Paul just... He just boils it down so succinctly. And right here in chapter 3, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. Notice that he says, since then. This is already a reality if you're a Christian. If you profess faith in Christ, you already have been raised with Christ. Because that's true, he says, set your heart on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Your reality as a Christian is that you're already seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. You're already hidden with Christ in God. He is your life. Now Paul then goes on in these next few verses to kind of flesh out what that looks like. What does that mean in practical terms? He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there's no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. He says here there's no Democrat or Republican. Here there's no there's no Rams fans or Patriots fans. Here there's no there's no Georgia and Tennessee. Here there's no black and white. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So when it comes to something like lying, 
As Christians, we don't lie not so that we can earn God's favor. Right? Not because we want to be able to, you know, look down our noses in judgment at other people. Nor do we just excuse lying and rationalize it and tolerate it and pretend like it's no big deal. No, instead we say, because of Christ Jesus, I've taken off the old self. I've taken off those ill-fitting clothes. He's given me a new wardrobe. I no longer flirt with the truth. I no longer lie to cover up for myself. I instead embrace the truth because Jesus Christ is the truth and He lives in me. That is the gospel of liberty and lordship in Christ Jesus. Being a Christian is simply living out who Jesus has already declared you to be and is making you to be. It's not self-improvement. It's not self-actualization. It's spiritual transformation into the image of Christ. And if we're following the gospel of liberty and lordship, there's only one thing we can do. Jesus says, keep on doing it. But if we realize we've embraced a corrupted gospel, there's only one thing we can do. And Jesus says, repent. And those are the two commands that Jesus gives this church. The first is repent. This is the only choice for those who have accepted or who are tolerating a false, corrupted gospel. He says, change your mind. Reject the falsehood and accept God's unchanging truth. Stop tolerating sin and false doctrine and cling to the gospel of truth and righteousness. And if you don't, as we've seen in previous sermons, Jesus says, I will come and I will discipline you. See, the current work of Jesus Christ right now is to prepare His bride, the church, for His return so that we are spotless and we are without wrinkle and we are pure and blameless before Him. He is at work purifying and pruning and making His church holy for Him. That's the essence of revitalization. That's the essence of revival and spiritual renewal. It's that we confess where we've gone off the rails and without Christ to put us back on the right path so we can follow Him in love and faithfulness. Maybe some of you today need to repent of the sins that you tolerate. Of the lifestyles and the perspectives that you just would assume, just, just, I just don't even want to go there. I don't, I don't want to rock the boat. I just don't want to say anything. I just, I'm just going to kind of wink and nod at that. Jesus says, repent. Maybe you have a legalistic approach to your faith that it's all about you. You've got to be perfect. You've got to, you've got to do everything the right way all the time because it all depends on you. Repent. And turn to faith in Christ. And let His Spirit make you who He's already said you are. But the second command is the command to the people who are being faithful, who are living by the gospel of liberty and lordship. And to them, he says, hold on. Keep the course. Stand firm. Don't give up. Don't give in. I'm coming home. I'm coming to get you soon and bring you home with me. Hold on. Church, we must hold on to what is true and what is right in a culture that is constantly redefining those things every other day. And the final part of this letter is the commitment. Jesus promises to those who do hold on, to those who do repent and who do cling to Him and His truth, He gives a double promise, and that is the promise of His greater authority. A greater authority than Rome. 
A greater authority than the leader of Thyatira. A greater authority than Apollo. A greater authority than Jezebel. He promises a greater authority. And he promises us this in two ways. The first is that he says that when he returns, the church will be given authority over the nations. And that might seem a little weird. But what Jesus is saying is this. Nations come and nations go. Now there's coming a day where there will be no United States of America. And there will be no, no Russia. And there will be no China. And there'll be no Venezuela, and there'll be no France or England. There's coming a day when nations will be no more, but the kingdom of God will last forever. And we, the church, the children of God, will rule and reign with Christ forever. That's what Christ is promising. And then He promises us the morning star. Now, in Revelation 22:16, Jesus is referred to as the bright and morning star. So when Jesus promises us the morning star, what He's promising us is Himself, His presence. Now, if you remember in the Great Commission, when Jesus tells us to go and to make disciples of all nations, He promises us His authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And at the end of that, He promises us His presence. I will be with you to the ends of the earth. Here Jesus ends this letter promising the same thing. His authority and His presence to each and every one of us. But you know what? You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to enjoy the presence of Jesus, do you? You can have Jesus today. You can know Jesus Christ and have His presence and His authority and His transforming power in your life today. But you've got to put your faith and trust in Him. You've got to reject sin. You've got to turn from sin. You can't have a libertine attitude towards it. But at the same time, you have to reject legalism. It's not about going to church. It's not even about getting baptized. You know, I made sure that Jerry and Sally, as I do, everybody understood clearly. And as I said to you all, the waters of that baptistry do not save. They do not wash your sins away, boys and girls. That's just city of Thompson water. It's not going to wash anything away. <laughs> Don, I didn't mean that. <laughs> your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Him. But you first have to acknowledge you have sin. And that's the problem, the danger in this world. Is people want to tell us there's no sin. That whatever you want to do is okay. Whatever's good for you, whatever works for you, that's okay. We have to reject both of those, and put our faith and trust in the one who took our sins seriously enough that he took them upon himself on Calvary's cross that you might be made clean. Do you know that love? Have you experienced that forgiveness and grace? If you've not, I pray in just a moment you'd come and put your trust in the one who loved you so much he'd rather endure the wrath of the Father on that cross and die than to spend eternity without you. And church... Let me ask you, what are you tolerating? What are we tolerating? What false gospels have we been guilty of believing? Maybe we need to come and kneel at this altar and repent ourselves. And ask God to forgive us for our wrong attitudes and our wrong perspectives. And ask Him to transform our mind and our heart. We as a church have got to stand firm for the truth. We've got to speak the truth, but speak it in love. Maybe this morning God is calling you to come and to, to declare your, your love for this church and that you want to be a part of this church and support this church. You want to unite with this family of faith as we strive to live out the truth of God with love. 
And you can help us stand for truth. You can help us study the truth of God's Word. You can help us live out the truth of God's Word. And you can help us reach out to this community in love for the people that need to know the grace and mercy of God. Whatever God has done on your heart this morning, I pray you'd come and respond. Let's stand together and pray.